Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. And I am, as always, Tyler Bishop. I'm a remote Tyler Bishop and join along, well, at a distance, at a socially acceptable distance, is Shelby Kang. Shelby, welcome back. And I, I said a remote Tyler Bishop, but I guess for our audience, I'm sort of always remote. That is true. But you're a remote Tyler Bishop to me, or I am a remote Shelby King to you. So it, it goes both ways. But yeah, I guess we are always remote to our our listeners. But maybe one day we'll consider doing like a, I don't know, something in person. Who knows? I know. Well, I mean, at this point, I'm pretty sure everybody listening to our podcast would, is ready to do some things in person and, uh, you know, awaiting our opportunity and, um, you know, patiently waiting, awaiting our opportunity to do so. So um, strange times as always. And hopefully this podcast can be a slight distraction, even though I'm sure uh, the coronavirus and our the global pandemic will be a topic of discussion throughout many episodes for the future. Yeah, definitely. Um, and of course, our first topic is... Um, pandemic related or coronavirus related and um it's from adweek so the title is what are sports media companies doing without live games um so of course there are no live games going on right now and editors of major sports media organizations say it's been a challenge but it's forced their newsrooms to kind of think more creatively about what coverage might be possible um so they're really focusing on covering more evergreen and historical aspects of the sports industry. Um, so Bleacher Report coverage has included interviews with different players. Um, sports Illustrated has kind of taken a big picture approach on topics such as the legal ramifications of postponing the Olympics. And then athletes, on the other hand, um, have started doing interviews with the Players' Tribune. So they're writing tributes to the cities that they've played in. So these are kind of just a few different things that people are kind of working around without any live games going on. Yeah, it's a hard time if you're basically any type of publisher, or any type of outlet uh, or media in general that relies largely on like something that you know requires events or something you know to take place because so much stuff basically can't take place that involves people i mean sports is one of those obviously and you think about all the things that are adjacent to sports in the olympics and things like that that you know even niche publishers uh will report on or cover and so uh people kind of are left with you know, you have a handful of topics you can do. You can regurgitate stuff. You can find like, um, you know, some other types of things that may be like personal interest. But then you're left with like one topic and it's like basically like how are all the factors and things associated with whatever it is you're reporting on um, affected by the pandemic, right? And there are challenges with reporting on that as well, where there may be some traffic and some eyeballs, but from an evergreen standpoint, there probably won't be. And then also, um, a lot of advertisers block that in terms of uh, advertising. There's been a lot of efforts to try to stop that. But one of the things that I think people don't realize about that is that advertisers are partially blocking it because they know it's going to eat up ad spend. Um, and so one of the fastest ways to just ensure that they're not just like blowing up their ad impressions is to just block all the, the new coronavirus-related stories and in, in media. I don't know if you fought, you probably don't. Um, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC, and both the WWE, so professional wrestling, and then 
uh, mixed martial arts, both of those respective organizations are trying very hard to put on events that are pay-per-view in, in April. And I think part of the motivation there is because there's nothing else, they see this kind of wide open, non-competitive market to do so. Um, but I, I don't think that it's going to occur. So it's a really hard time if you, if you're an outlet that covers live events, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I think the good thing about um, the sports industry or sports is that sports fans are kind of always going to be like lifelong sports fans. So when this is all over and when we're on the other side of this um, in terms of sports, I think it'll ramp up really fast. I actually have a different take, partially, partially. So let me, just bear with me. I don't know that I'm right. This is everybody I'm sure has their pandemic predictions for when life goes back to some kind of normal, uh, how things will be. But so I used to live in St. Louis, which is in the middle of the United States, for those that aren't aware. And the National Football League had a sports team there called the St. Louis Rams. And the St. Louis Rams were my favorite football team. I was a diehard fan and went to every game, was a season ticket holder. And that team got up and left the city of St. Louis and moved to Los Angeles, California. And everybody in the city hated it. It was a big ordeal. And even though I relocated to Southern California as well, uh, to this day, I hate the Rams. And <laughs> I actually like do not follow football near as closely as I used to. And partially just because I'm not an engaged, I had this kind of like period of time where the team had moved. I didn't really have a team. And so I just wonder if this disruption from sports, you have a lot of people that kind of wrapped a lot of their free time up with, you know, kind of watching live sports. And there was always a season going on without that. I kind of wonder if people won't find something else to occupy their time. And I, I actually think, I mean, you see this after you know, holdouts because of like players unions and stuff. Sometimes sports will take a hit in terms of viewership. I, I actually wonder uh, how hard a lot of organizations and associations will have to work to get their, their audiences back, believe it or not. Yeah, that is um, an interesting thing that we'll kind of have to wait and see. Um, me being not an avid sports fan, I almost, <laughs> I actually did forget about, you know, team loyalties and things like that. So it's interesting um, that you bring that up. I actually think that this is a huge opportunity for esports. Um, uh, I'm not a, I've n I'm not somebody that's ever really watched Twitch ever and uh, not a fan at all of like watching esports. Um, but I will say that to me, it sticks out that this is one of few things that people enjoy watching. It's big globally that all of a sudden there's no other sports. And I think people are desperate. And it's like, hey, this is something competitive that actually is still happening. I think people will be interested. So I actually think that that's, a, that's an area that will grow. Right. Um, the next topic I have is from DigiDay, and it's titled, With Ad Rates Falling, Snopes Can't Keep Up With Coronavirus Misinformation. Um, so in the last 30 days, fact-checking site Snopes has had a 44% increase in traffic over the previous 30-day period. So that's more than 36 million unique visitors. Um, and readers are just trying to kind of debunk the fake coronavirus news that's circulating right now. Um, but despite that, the company's ad rates are shrinking. So the VP of operations, Vinnie Green, says that there's been a decrease in CPMs as they've reached the end of Q1 with expectations that it'll drop off a cliff with the start of Q2. Um, another issue is that they're a bit of a bootstrapped media company. And despite there being a higher volume of news to fact check, 
their business model isn't really enabling the company to hire more people to the newsroom right now. So although they've scaled back their routine content production so staff can focus on the most pressing news, um, they're kind of stuck between burning out employees by chasing this traffic or telling the, their staff that they can't treat this, they call it infodemic, <laughs> any differently because they literally can't afford to. Um, so in December, Green told DigiDay that advertising was, this was a weird word that I had to look up, but antithetical to Snopes mission. So I, yeah. I looked it up and it was like um, conflicting with their mission, I suppose. Um, and their goal was to transition to being mainly reader revenue funded um, through a membership model. So they ha currently have 75 um, hundred founding members with a founding membership cost to be at $30. Um, but he says he doesn't expect this revenue stream to ever be the lion's share of revenue and that they will pretty much never be able to support their entire operations on this. Um, so according to Green, Snopes was profitable last year, but the revenue breakdown still puts programmatic advertising at the top revenue driver, which currently makes up 55% of their revenue stream. Um, so I just thought this was an interesting topic to include because we've talked a lot about publishers who have lost traffic due to all this. And so here's Snopes kind of on the flip side of this where they can't actually seem to handle the rise in traffic and demand. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely think there's publishers that are helped from this from a traffic and view standpoint. We're seeing that a lot. Uh, also seeing quite a few people, um, you know, like, basically grow a business off of this but you know it's going to be short lasted ultimately um even if this lasts a little bit longer than what maybe people are initially projecting but i do think uh one of the myths that i'm seeing is that um membership or donation or subscription like whatever you want to call it is gonna is gonna basically be a new pivot for publishers um that either haven't explored it or those that have are going to basically like double down on it I can't think of a uh, like a more fundamentally like flawed idea, just given the fact that the reason why ads are making less is because advertisers don't have money. The advertisers don't have money because they're laying people off because people aren't buying things because they're seeing the impact that's coming for the economy. I think that the thought that that a publisher is going to be able to uh, entice people in a time in in times that are tougher to to spend money on content which is you know we've talked about it so many times like just the commodity of content even someone like snopes that has like a brand name for kind of myth busting uh, i really enjoy their site for like kind of going to figure out if the latest news is bogus or not um there certainly are competitors uh there's nothing that stops you know someone else from being able to do good research and reporting and in fact with furloughs happening across publishers and things like that there's a lot of good reporters and writers that i'm sure or are looking for opportunities to fill in elsewhere. So I actually think that com content is going to become more of a commodity in all of this, which actually hurts subscriptions and things along those lines. So um, it'll be interesting to see how some of these businesses do long-term with that. But if you are someone like Snopes, like it makes sense to try to clean up on that while you can, if you can. Definitely. What does the fact that they're kind of stuck in this spot where they can't really hire more people, but at the same time, they can't really quite reach demand. Like, what does that say about maybe the way the organization is set up or the size of it or how it's managed? Um, can you glean anything from that? 
Uh, I can't. I mean, I, I mean, we, we have some personal interactions uh, just with Snopes in general. So I can I can like maybe speak to that, but I won't not on the podcast. But the <laughs> uh, the biggest thing I would say just about media in general, and I've read a few articles on this, and I think a lot of businesses will figure this out is a part of kind of the general recession that will follow the, the pandemic, at least in the United States, but I think globally. And that is that um, organizations because they're forced to, will learn to be more efficient with their dollars just across the board. And that means more remote work, less overhead. And uh, I think that publishers, uh, especially large branded publishers or growing publishers, will learn really quickly about what types of things are essential and what types of things aren't. And um, I think that that'll be really good for them. Uh, I always kind of malign reporters oftentimes that take three, three to four, four days to write a story and the story ends up being 500 words long and includes nothing overly unique and one or two quotes from people that were probably dying to give them quotes to begin with. I don't understand why that story isn't something that couldn't have been done in an afternoon. And I think that that type of material, and I, and I, I know that there's a huge population of people that will immediately kind of like balk at that, that sentiment because there is reporting that does take time. You have to check facts and things along those lines. But there's a lot of stories out there that don't require that sort of in-depth analysis, and you can do good articles uh, fairly quickly and efficiently, and you can pay people a really fair wage to do that, and it's more about the speed and the uh, productivity of, I guess, of the, the employees or the resources than it is necessarily the, I guess, the value of them, if that makes sense. All right. Um, so the next topic is from What's New in Publishing, and it's um, about how to get your journalism in front of readers during this crisis. Um, so this article is geared more towards news publishers, but I think these examples can be helpful for all publishers. Um, so the main idea is to find new ways to fit into your readers' new routines. Um, so I know it's kind of a thing that's been harped on a lot, but um, it's kind of true more today as everyone tries to find um, their new normal. And we've actually, it's funny because we've been talking about finding a normal um, just internally with our, our team. Um, yeah. And I, it definitely feels relevant. Um, so in addition to providing answers for your audience's um, concerns about COVID-19, it's also crucial to share content that addresses the side effects that this crisis has had. Um, so one example of this is from a French publication. Um, I'm going to butcher it. It's called Ost France. I'm, I'm going to apologize <laughs> in advance. Um, so they've been directly soliciting questions from their readers and answering them in a special section. Um, other publishers are taking a more community-focused approach by launching pages for the readers to offer help to their community. Um, so the offers for help go beyond you know, grocery shopping for at-risk neighbors, but there's also offers to provide computer lessons for anyone struggling in the new virtual world. Um, psychology schools are offering free help from their students and faculty. Um, another idea is to run photo contests of um, home offices to keep your audiences engaged. So I thought some of these ideas are really cool. It's kind of just nice to see new ways to help people connect. And I feel like we all kind of need a little bit of feel good news right now. So just something that I threw in. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good one. I think in, it's important to remember, too, that everything that uh, probably everyone is collectively facing 
legitimately, there's things that everyone here that's listening probably has their own concerns about. There's things that take legitimate concern. But I will point out the, I guess, the glass half full side of this in that in in times like this, there are always opportunities. And um, I think if you're a digital publisher, one of the great things about the internet is that uh, the internet is largely unaffected by this. And what I mean is um, it people can still go on the internet, um, all the tools, the infrastructure, everything that the internet relies on to go um, and to work efficiently is still there. And in fact, probably running better than ever. And that sort of, um, that sort of efficiency, that sort of, uh, I guess, Im improvement or, uh, I guess, stability is an opportunity, I think. And um, I, I think it's important that we don't forget that. And yeah, I mean, your point about just <laughs> finding some news that's positive, I think is good as well. All right. So the last topic I have on deck is from Search Engine Journal, and it's about the new Chrome 81 update. So sometimes websites will load as HTTP without redirecting to HTTPS. And there are also situations where a site might have old images that are coded with HTTP instead of using relative URLs. So what Chrome 81 will do is it'll change the HTTP URL of images to HTTPS. Um, so that way, it, they're calling it auto-upgraded to a more secure um, protocol. So this change is important because there are no fallbacks for this. So if an image cannot be loaded via HTTPS, then Google will not show the image and it may potentially break a web page. Um, so <laughs> Google, of course, they have reasons for why this will benefit. Um, so the first benefit is that user experience is improved by delivering a website within a 100% secure environment. The second benefit is that the speed of the site is improved since insecure image content may no longer be downloaded. And the third benefit is to the web publisher because the security warning can be removed and there will no longer be that not secure site. So <laughs> I think it's funny that Google had to come up with a few reasons to why people should like this update, but that's just a new update I wanted to include for people in case they run into any issues with that. Well, so what's funny is I uh, I actually th I agree with Google and that I think this is a really good update. Actually, believe it or not, the reasons I think are the funny thing. So the first two reasons are basically solutions that Google is both creating the problem and then saying that they're the solution for. And then the third one is exactly the benefit of it. And um, and that is that right now it's very frustrating if you're a publisher. And usually this happens when you have older pages and you've moved a site from HTTP to HTTPS. There's still either images in your database or images that were uh, located in uh, on other domains or someplace else or just didn't get moved over properly. Um, there's a lot of different reasons why. And so what happens is you get that mixed content warning on usually older pages or articles, or you can get it sometimes when you freshly move over a site from HTTP to HTTPS. And so what Google is saying is like, don't worry about that because what we'll do is we'll automatically serve that image in the HTTPS version, which in most cases, usually all publishers have to do is figure out why that image is not being served HTTPS and and then just simply change the um, the canonical for that you know subdirectory or whatever it is in their on their website uh, and you, all you have to do is find that image URL and then just add an s and you know it's going to serve secure anyways 
The exception is, is whenever it doesn't and you're getting that image from someplace else that's not secure, in which case you're going to get the, you know, the little image missing thing, or I don't know, Google saying it might break the site. What I think they mean is that if it's CSS or, uh, you know, something fundamental to the way the site displays, it's going to show basically junk. And so it's not going to display correctly. So um, I actually think it's a good thing because I think there's a lot of publishers that have this problem and don't really know how to fix it. And so this way they can stop getting those mixed content warnings and not secure stuff. But the benefit is that, you know, users will see that it's secure in Chrome browsers, which is that's the better user experience. So it's like Google being like, it's better for user experience. Yeah, but you're marking it unsecure. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. But either way, yeah, I think it, it's more likely to make publishers happy than it is to make them sad. Although I'm sure that there's a couple of publishers that have had sites for a really long time that have this problem now that'll, that'll see their site images broken on older articles and it'll be a pain in the butt for them. All right. Um, that's all the topics I have this week. Um, is there anything else going on on your end? No, I would just say that um, because of, you know, obviously our remote stuff, we haven't been able to do our regular uh, video version of the podcast. However, we have been doing a lot more uh, video content on our Ezoic uh, YouTube channel. And we do have a separate playlist away from all other Ezoic related stuff. So that way, if you're a listener and you're like, I don't want nothing to do with Ezoic, whatever, we've done a pretty good job of keeping this podcast uh, fairly separate from the brand that you and I both represent. But the content that we have on both Ezoic Explains and the Publisher Spotlight um, are pretty much just free information for sites and, and publishers where we, we either show people how to do stuff or just interview publishers. And we've been publishing the audio version of some of those here on the podcast uh, channel here recently and um, hopefully everyone is enjoying those and we certainly have more of those to come i think that's all so we want to thank everyone for joining us on another episode of the publisher lab we certainly appreciate the time that you take to uh to listen to us and check the show out if you haven't already uh make sure that you subscribe to our youtube channel or uh make sure you add the podcast to whatever podcast app you use and, and write us a review if you can those things are like gold and they help us continue to grow and and invest in the podcast so from tyler bishop and shelby kang both remotely wishing you a best of the rest of your week that's it <laughs>